Next, this month's special series focus on geriatric medicine and aging. ReachMD talks to experts about new thinking and innovations in the treatment of conditions of the aging body and mind. American scientist Raymond Pearl was of the opinion that people over 50 should forfeit their right to vote because they would have grown too foolish. Why in fact do we age at all and where is the study of gerontology taking us? You're listening to ReachMD, I'm your host Dr Mary Lushaz and joining me today is Dr Stephen Alstead, a professor at the Barshop Institute for Longevity and Ageing Studies at the University of Texas Health Science Centre and Research Committee Chair for the American Federation for Aging Research. Welcome and thanks for joining us, Dr. Ostad. Pleasure to be here. So if there really is no fountain of youth, are the answers to why we age found in our genes? Well, yes, they are. The remarkable thing to me is the lack of puzzlement over this. Because if you think about it, we're biological organisms. We're supposed to be able to repair any damage that happens to us, but somehow we fail ultimately to do that. And that's what aging is all about, is the ultimate failure to repair damage to ourselves. What's the expected lifespan of an American at the moment? It's about 80 years, slightly more for women, slightly less for men. Mm -hmm. And how long do you think our children of today can expect to live? Well, there are some people that think that the expectations of people even born today are to live 100 years or more. I think that's a little bit optimistic, but in the long term, in the next few decades, a 100-year life expectancy doesn't seem unreasonable to me. So why do we age, Dr. Rusted? Well, we age because the basic processes of life are inherently destructive. The way I answer this when I'm trying to be uh, glib is I say, well, we age because we eat and breathe. If we didn't eat and breathe, then we wouldn't have any problems with aging. But what I mean by that more seriously is that in breathing and using the oxygen that we take in to break apart the chemical bonds and the food we eat and give ourselves energy, we actually create these damaging free radicals that really seriously damage all the components of our body. They damage our DNA, they damage our proteins, they damage our lipids. Now eating, we use sugars basically to provide that energy. That's what the oxygen is breaking down. And the sugars also cause damage to our bodies. They attach to our proteins, they make them not function so well. So it's really the basic fundamental processes of life that have this destructive undertone to it and it's that destructive undertone that eventually does us in. So what are the hot topics today in cellular aging? I'd say the really the hottest topics are probably protein turnover. That is the proteins in our cells are continuously being damaged and when they're damaged they don't work very well but we have this whole cellular machinery to recycle them. And so I think one of the hottest things to happen at the cellular level today is us trying to understand how damaged proteins get recognized, how they get recycled, and what limits our ability to make new proteins. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yes. If you imagine your, your cell is just a soup of proteins that are doing various chemical reactions, every time they get hit by a free radical, Every time they bump into one another, they're causing damage. And to function appropriately, proteins are 
unfolded in complicated ways like origami. And every time they're damaged, it disrupts that precise folding pattern. Now, our cells recognize when our proteins are no longer folded correctly, and they mark them for degradation. And then they get chopped up into amino acids and recycled. But they don't do that perfectly. And gradually, we end up with more and more damaged proteins in our cells. And it's one of the reasons that cells, as they age, don't work as well as they did when they were younger. Now, can you tell us why telomeres have become so important and talk about how that concept originated in the scientific field? Yes, telomeres are associated with what's known as cellular aging, which is that the cells of your body can reproduce themselves a certain number of times and then they and then they shut down. And the reason that human cells shut down and they don't reproduce anymore is because their telomeres have gotten too short. Telomeres are caps on the ends of chromosomes that protect them from damage. Some people analogize them to the plastic caps on the ends of your shoelaces that protect the ends. But telomeres shorten every time a cell divides. They probably are there to prevent cancer because certainly if a cell divides so many times and then is no longer capable of it, that's a great way to stop cancer cells in their tracks. But one of the other things that happens is that these same free radicals that damage everything else also damage telomeres and shorten them. So telomeres become short because they get damaged by free radicals. They become short because cells continue dividing. And when they become short enough, our cells interpret that as a critical bit of DNA damage and they shut down replication. And what that means, of course, is that you're no longer able to repair and regenerate, say, your liver as well when you get older because you've got fewer cells in your liver that are capable of dividing. Same thing in the immune system. You need vigorous cell division in the immune system for your immune system to work properly. And if more and more of those cells are incapable of division, then you can't mount the same kind of immune response. So we now think that this telomere shortening is implicated in many aspects of aging. So if you were to find a way of lengthening the telomere, would that then potentiate the risk for cancer developing in that person? Well, that's a worry. That is a worry. It certainly is. And people are working on this very hard. And the data we have to date suggests that this may not be as big a worry as we think. But until we have a lot more experimental work on this, I think it's something that we have to consider that by lengthening telomeres and sort of extending the regenerative capacity of our bodies, we might be making ourselves somewhat more cancer prone. It's one of these sort of diabolical trade-offs that we can't seem to escape in biology. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars. And today I'm very lucky to be talking to Dr. Stephen Alsted and we're trying to work out why we age. So Dr. Alsted, do you think the answer to longevity will ever be found in a pill? Yes, I do. (laughs) Maybe several pills. Um, I mean, we used to think about longevity, even as 25 years ago, I would say, as something that was sort of fixed, that humans age at a certain rate and mice age at a different rate. And, and that's sort of immutable. It's, it's, it's so deeply buried in our genes that nothing can be done about it. But we now know from a lot of experimental research in, in laboratory animals that that's not true. 
we can change the rate of aging by tinkering with genes, by tinkering with diet, by pharmaceuticals. And what that means is that ultimately we're going to find ways. I mean, let's just imagine we now have in mice, let's say we have two dozen different genes that if we alter them, makes the mice live longer and age more slowly. Well, those genes just produce a chemical product. And if we can certainly design pharmaceuticals ultimately to do the same things that we're doing by altering the genes in mice. Nobody's suggesting that we come in and alter the genes of people in order to make them live longer. That would be, there are ethical issues with that. If you could take a pill that would cause your cells to manufacture a chemical that does the same thing, then it's quite conceivable. Uh, we could live substantially longer and more importantly, remain healthy substantially longer. Which pharmaceutical holds the most promise at the moment, do you think? The one with the most promise right now is a pharmaceutical called rapamycin, mm -hmm. which is used in the clinic uh, to prevent organ rejection and in some cancer uh, chemotherapy regimes. But there was a study last year that shockingly showed that if you administered rapamycin in food to mice, when they were reasonably old for a mouse, the human equivalent of about 60 years, they lived about 30% longer. And that was astonishing. That was, nobody had ever found anything that lengthened the life of an experimental animal when it was that age. And so we're now following up and examining the effects of rapamycin in many, many areas to make sure that it's really a health-enhancing uh, pharmaceutical and not just a lifespan-enhancing pharmaceutical. How far away do you think we are from having the answer to that? I would say probably two years because there's so much work going on right now. I'd say with, within two years, we're going to know if it really enhances multiple aspects of health in mice. Then, of course, we're going to want to do a few more trials before we actually advocate using it in humans. One of the interesting questions is that since rapamycin is used clinically as an immunosuppressant, is it just likely to make us more susceptible to diseases? Are we more likely to die of the flu if we're taking rapamycin? That would be a serious concern. In the laboratory, we work very hard to protect our mice from all kinds of infectious diseases. But in the real world, of course, uh, we're exposed to all kinds of pathogens. We've just finished some research, however, that suggests that in mice, at the dose of the drug that they took in order to live longer, that you don't find this immunosuppressive characteristics, both in response to H1N1 uh, influenza and also to pneumococcal pneumonia, the bacteria that causes that. We found that mice taking the life-extending dose of rapamycin are not more susceptible to these diseases, which is somewhat comforting. Would you take rapamycin yourself? Uh, not quite yet. <laughs> uh, g give me two years more of research and, and then I would consider it. Now, you wrote a book uh, entitled Why We Age, and in it you talk about the concept of healthy ageing. Would you like to discuss that? Yes, I think, I think those of us who, who've been working in the field uh, for so long have been talking about extending life and increasing longevity. We've been doing that as a sort of shorthand because that's not really the point. The point is really enhancing health. Nobody wants to just get frailer and frailer and feebler and feebler, but yet stay alive. 
But what we found in sort of all the animal research is that if we extend life, we're also enhancing and preserving health. So if you enhance an animal's lifespan with dietary restriction, which is known for a long time, you're making it a healthier animal for a very much longer time. You're not simply prolonging its period of of decrepitude. What's the one most important thing you can do to prolong lifespan, in your opinion? Uh, well, right now, it's the boring old stuff that, you know, your your, your mother probably told you. It's uh, uh, don't overeat, probably don't smoke would be right up at the top of it, do things in moderation, exercise. Exercise is one of those interesting things. It has a relatively small effect on longevity, believe it or not, but has a huge effect on functionality. If you want to be able to play with your grandkids, do the sort of outdoors activities that you've liked your whole life when you're older, then exercise is extremely important. However, it's not going to make you live that much longer, surprisingly. Who do you think was the most important pioneer of aging research? Whoa, that is a really good question. I would say right now, the person we'd have to consider to be a major pioneer is Denham Harmon, who really developed the free radical theory of aging in the 1950s. We now know that free radicals are involved in so many different diseases that I'd have to think uh, he's going to be remembered as a real intellectual pioneer. Uh, In your opinion, which culture is the most obsessed with aging? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by obsessed. I think certainly I can't think of any more youth-obsessed culture than uh, the United States. Uh, I'm from California originally, and California, I think, is continuing to be defined by a, a, a sort of obsession with youth culture. So to that extent, we in the United States are very obsessed with not getting older, not getting frail, not getting decrepit. Ironically, there are some other cultures like Japan where that there's so much respect paid to the elderly that I think people think differently about aging in places where greater age is associated with greater respect. I used to actually do research in the, among uh, primitive hunter-gatherer cultures in New Guinea, and there the older people were treated with a great deal of respect, and my guess is that the attitude towards aging is different in cultures like that. Well, my thanks to you, Dr. Osted, for being our guest today. We've been discussing why we age. I'm Dr. Marie Lushaz, and you've been listening on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions through our website at reachmd.com, which now features our entire medical show library in on-demand podcasts. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Geriatric Medicine and Aging. For a program guide and a complete list of shows, visit us at reachmd.com.